Hello and welcome to another episode of the Barefoot Mediator podcast, news and views from Jane Gunn and guests. In this episode, I speak with David Murrin, who is a global forecaster who shares geopolitical and global forecasts. We discuss the state of the world, global conflict and the difference between linear and lateral thinking in the times we are in. Welcome, David. So, David, you're a futurist, and I wanted to start with a quote. It's a Charles Kettering quote. I expect to spend the rest of my life in the future, so I want to be reasonably sure of what kind of future it's going to be. That is my reason for planning. And I think some of what we're going to discuss today is that people don't do enough planning. Isn't that right? (laughs) I think they don't do enough uh, recognition of how they got to the point and how they might go from that point forwards and yeah. just sort of think about it was a, it every day is the same as we talked about before we started i know so you and i've had a, a a number of very interesting discussions and we want to sort of replicate that here um bearing in mind where we're at you know where we're at in the world what's going on in this time of crisis but i want you to take us back a bit and you know how did you get to where you are what is it you actually do and why why is it so fascinating for you <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I think I was really blessed. Uh, two very diverse parents. Mm-hmm. One was, um, you know, from the Indian Army, and the English people that served in the Indian Army as the officer corps. And my father, who was uh, an aeronautical engineer who had come up through the apprenticeship system, incredibly gifted. And they were people of the world. In in the, you know, when I was brought up from sixty three, when I was born to sort of eighty. British Britain was pretty insular after it lost its empire and we were brought up to travel and we travel far more than the people around us so I felt very privileged to think of the world as a, a, a place you could get to and is accessible and in a complete world rather than just our island Britain mentality and I was always fascinated by warfare from the earliest age to my mother's great concern mm-hmm. and uh, there were members of my family which had fought in probably all of our wars so there was a direct connection to that experience as a family Uh, and I think probably very early on I worked out that wars defined us Mm -hmm. and that you know humanity was in fact entwined with conflict and tried to understand in conflict only now you know as I come into my 50 58 years later do I understand that's exactly what I was searching for this process of humanity's path through life and what, where conflict sat within it, which gave us an insight as to who we really were. And so I sort of went through school. I had visceral experiences speaking you know, the Queen's English uh, in the transition between grammar school and, and comprehensive school. And uh, some clever person decided to put the grammar school people into the, into the secondary school that would become the comprehensive. And so I learned what it was like to go to school every day and wonder whether or not I'd get clubbed over the head and beaten up. And no one ever managed to do it because I was aware and I'd been studying martial arts for a little while since I was young. Uh, But one particular experience really is relevant to the world today. And that was my mother giving me a single poppy on poppy day. And poppy days weren't like they are now where we have hundreds of poppies around the house and they're in our pockets because we forget one and buy another one. You got one poppy each if you were lucky. And I'd lost mine. My mother said, well, I'll lend you mine, but you've got to give it back. And there I was in the first play break. And these um, big kids caught me by surprise from the year above and shoved me over and took my poppy. And all I could think was, was I promised my mother I'd give the poppy back. So I leapt to my feet and I looked at the biggest guy who now claims the poppy and put it in his lapel. And I said, look, I'm going to ask you three times really nicely. 
please can I have my poppy back? Of course, there was laughter and they jumped up and down. Thought it was really hilarious. And I said, that's the first time. And then I said, please, can I have my poppy back? Mm-hmm. And now they're laughing even more. This is hilarious. This is well-spoken boy against four of them asking for his poppy back. Mm-hmm. And I then said, please. And before I finished my words, they started laughing. Mm-hmm. And I flipped him onto his back with a judo throw. He landed headfirst onto the concrete. I followed up really quickly with a knee to the sternum. So he was winded. And I sat astride him. And I looked into his eyes and he was stunned. And I thought, he has really big ears. They're useful. <laughs> I grabbed his ears and I smashed his head against the concrete until he was senseless, knowing that if I didn't do something definitive, the other three would finish me off. Mm-hmm. And then took the poppy from the lapel and I stood up and walked to the first person and he recoiled. Then I walked to the second and the third and they recoiled and I walked away. And there was an uncharacteristically vicious act of self-defense even in you know some difficult things but i knew if i didn't definitively act against the big one the other three would join in i would end up in hospital and indeed within six months they were all in prison for violent acts acutely violent acts to other people so this was a vicious group and it taught me the visceral experience of facing down a bully and they only understand force and in our lesser conversations if you talk about putin that's his psychology until the west realize we have to confront our fears and front him down we're not going to be safe so that visceral experience taught me a lot about how humans really work and you know when you get outside the boundaries of dialogue and discussion and the safe boundaries of society unless you're prepared to protect yourself physically you will succumb to someone bigger and stronger and more aggressive and i always thought that was the parallel for democracy the democracy would exist as the anomaly compared to hierarchies simply because we were strong enough to defend ourselves and our ancestors had fought one war and a second war and a cold war for the perseverance and the continuance of freedom and democracy and so as the years went on as we'll talk about my alarm at the fact that it's uh, the, the descendants of those brave people have basically become hubristic and hedonistic and self-absorbed to the point of vulnerability has led us to this moment. And then I decided I wanted to study physics because it was the worst, hardest thing I could do. And so off I went to Exeter University and I specialised in physics with geophysics. And I did actually think there was nothing at all that related degree level first year physics to the A-level physics I'd done, different subject. It was just completely mathematical in a way I had no idea about. And my maths had been, maths, which was a natural subject for me, had been sabotaged by a rather useless maths teacher at A-level that you know, reduced me to a sort of completely stumbling form of, of, of exam capability. So I had to struggle myself back up again to that process. And, I, and the second year was even worse. It was really like the biggest brain exercise at the gym you've ever been through. And then suddenly there was this kind of breakthrough about concept and construct and basic principles and dismantling things that seem complex with simplistic concepts that explain things. And that was fasc- it was just fascinating to break through. And I, I really loved the geophysical part. So I became one of my, it was physics with geophysics. And geophysics became a passion because you could see the world around you and you could see the examples of how physics shaped it and understood it. It's brilliant. Um, And I also knew what I wanted to do because I didn't want to go to the city. I didn't want to become like other people. Um, And certainly I didn't want a boring existence. And I found these things called seismologists who went off for oil companies. And I'd signed up probably in my second year. I knew what I was going to do. And so when everyone was wondering what we're going to do in the end of the third year, I knew what I was going to do. So much so that before my graduation, I was out in the jungles of Papua New Guinea in my first experiences of 
working with cannibals who had tribalistic behaviors, who had low thresholds of individuality. And that's when I saw my first experience of shared collective emotions. And I loved that job apart from it was, you know, 14 weeks in a row and no, and 12 hours a day and you got leaves. And for three years, it was brilliant. It was exactly the boy's own rough and tumble that I was, you know, felt like it was designed to do. But living in a swamp is really unhealthy. And I ended up with the most acute ear infection for a year where it felt like someone was lancing my ear. I couldn't deal with it anymore. So I came back and in that pause of recovery, I decided that she didn't want that lifestyle for two reasons. One is, you know, there weren't any girlfriends available. And secondly, as a young man, that was pretty like hot on my list. And, and the other part of it that was so irrelevant is that I just thought I always wanted to be the best I could be. And for some reason, this organization didn't encourage people to be the best they can be or to look after each other. And I saw people die because of poor company policy. And I didn't want to be in an average place, even though I'd moved to the top of the tree relatively quickly. So through sort of hook or by crook, I came up with this thing, where could you go where you're rewarded to be capable? Therefore, you know, capability will be part of the story. And if the city was the only place in the Big Bang you could go to. And so I applied for commodity houses. I didn't know what a broker was. I just like sent lots of letters over, had some really hilarious experiences coming out of the jungle and, you know, being interviewed by in some, some of this, I can't even talk about them on the on the radio, but they were some of the colourful aspects of my life, being interviewed by someone who was fascinated of the opposite sex and fascinated in the job I did. And anyway, through this wonderful route, I ended up, I'm alluding to lots of fun things in that part of my life. And, and then essentially, I ended up through a friend being offered a job at JP Morgan, and I almost sabotaged it because I didn't know what JP Morgan was. It was one of two great banks on the street. And I just regaled against this idea that I would be a bank teller. How bloody boring. So I just tried to tell them about the trading company we set up with a friend of mine, how we flew things out and gave them to the Papua New Guineans and earned more money in our trading company than we ever did as seismologists, but it was fun. Anyway, he was at Hong Kong Chinese and he loved that. And so I got a job. And that was the beginning of standing on a trading floor and watching modern people behave like tribal people and share their collective emotions. And that penny dropped about three weeks later that we're not so different. Our threshold of individuality may be higher, but we still have a shared collective emotional construct. And most people's emotions are not really their own in many situations. And then I started to decide I was fascinated by predicting markets. You know, how could you work out whether what tomorrow would happen? And I looked at the economists who were, you know, a little bit like the Druids, I'd say, you know, they were viewed as with reverence. They were completely crap on every single level. But somehow, I don't know why you go back. I suppose it's the same as a Druid who looks at the entrails and says, tomorrow will be dark and the sun comes out. And they say, okay, I'll give it another go. But that was what it was like to watch economists as a scientist and viewing it. And for all the economists listening, I'm very sorry to disparage you, but I don't know many that really are good at predicting what comes next. And still, are. you know, you won't survive running a hedge fund if you use that model. And so then I started to fiddle with price and price and related to behavior like a good scientist. And I realized other people had done all sorts of work. They were considered fringe, but as a scientist, surely quantifying price, quantified behavior and predictability was a scientific observation rather than someone on a broomstick. And it was bizarre that many of these people that weren't scientific viewed that as, as a lateral process, but it was so obvious. And by the end of it, we set up a group with another chap in New York that basically changed the way the bank took risk. And on the first day on that helipad, when I had my tribal right, I promised myself I'd run my own business. 
at 30. So at the age of 30, I set up my first hedge fund. And of course, people couldn't spell hedge fund in 1993. You know, there was like, who the hell are you? Are you mad? <laughs> so off I went into the abyss and, you know, and did that. And we set up a second one with my then partner um, and mother of my children. Uh, and we both came out of the JP Morgan stable and it was an emerging market. So we were emerging market macro hedge fund, which was just really cool. And we were number one in the world for a whole period of time. Yeah. And I as a CIO became responsible for how we invested and what we do. And we shared our duties in a you know, fascinating way as a, as a couple in life and a couple in business. And then 9-11 came along and I remember watching it and I remember thinking, oh my God, right, that is, and I knew what it was because it wasn't an accident because I'd been brought up with some of the best aviators in the world, head, head test pilots for you know the US Air Force. They're all our family friends. And um, I remember a week later thinking, so what if this world that we thought was the end of history and that forevermore democracy would dominate, what if this was a signal that actually we were in decline and these somehow two intelligence agencies didn't share their information, but they were competing against each other. And that was where the gap of the immune system was. So what happens if actually that's a signal for decline that everyone's missed? So it was in the bath at the time because all of my great thoughts in the bath. And then I thought, well, okay, so I can only get 100 years of price data. So how the hell can I work out if this tidal wave goes back to a 500-year cycle and it's so big you don't see it on the data for 100 years? That really bothered me. That occupied a week or so. So then I thought, okay, so I'm going to take my price models and I'm going to go and invert them into a social economic behavioral pattern. And I'm going to take their essence and link them together. I'm going to create this thing which I call the five stages of empire where you, you're driven by demographics, you expand to regionalization, you have a civil war, like Brexit, with actual bloodshed, expand to empire, get to maturity, overextend and decline. And that's your cycle. And then I started looking at histories and empires, and I could not believe it. And I mean, I mean Jane, because everything in it kept repeating. And so much so that I think, well, what, and there it was, a battle. And I used battles as the clocks of war. And that really was uncannily weird to have from first principles found an underlying pattern that didn't require physical data but took non-correlated information to create this cycle and so then I was able to say well where are we in the world and I had a bit of a problem because the modern western empires have very short durations the Portuguese the Spanish the Dutch then the French had a go then the English the biggest one of all and then Germany tried twice Second time as an atheist country. And then America, the last of the Christian Christians empires. And I thought, oh, hang on a second. I wonder if technology has changed the duration because all these things are like 150 years, 80 years. And then I realized the meme wasn't a national meme. The meme was a religious meme. So this is a super Western Christian empire. And the nations were part of the pistons of a bigger system. And it started off in regionalization with a Catholic system. And then it had a civil war, which is about linear Catholic control versus lateral, creative, open-mindedness, which is what the Protestant movement was about. And that's what liberated the true growth for a global maritime power. Now, it was great, right? But the problem was, hang on a second, 9-11 was the decline of the American empire, fifth stage, and we're living in it. And it's going to come to fruition within 20 years. Now, that was a horrible feeling that, in fact... You know, the end of history and the neoconservative dream that we'd all like to assume that democracy had won forever. I suddenly I was realizing it hadn't won forever. And then I watched America started to print money after 01 to 03. 
And of course, money printing was all part of the stage of decline where you you are, you are now a linear system that's unadaptable. So you just use your strength to create leverage through printing and money to compensate for lack of growth. And we saw, you know, instead of three times the GDP construct in 03, it was eight, nine times in 08. And by the end of 2020, it was 40 times. And that's the end of a system when that happens. And I was then able to correlate it with an inflationary cycle called the contractive cycle, which every 56 years we have a major war from the Napoleonic War to the American Civil War to the First World War to the peak in 1975. And I predicted this power shift between East and West because at that stage, I also worked out that Japan was the first Asian empire and China had started as a second Asian empire and it would fill the gap of the American Western Christian decline. And of course, going on television in 03 and telling people this, I mean, there were people laughing in their chairs. They couldn't believe this was ever going to happen. And I made the prediction at that stage, it would be violent because of the commodity price peak in between 22 and 25 would mean this could never be a peaceful transition. They never are. So we're sitting on the cusp of the biggest transition in 500 years on the peak of commodity cycle. And basically our risk was World War III. Yeah. That was the big message. And there were lots of sub messages about how systems work, how they're created by lateral thinkers and, and lost by linear thinkers, the subsets of humanity's herd and how it operates. And so I was able to build all sorts of constructs which enable me to predict the world around me that is obvious when you use them and to other people, they're only random if you don't. Fascinating. And let's let, let's dive back a bit because you talk about this experience of going through school and going into a comprehensive school, which I did, but I did the opposite. I went from the secondary modern up to the grammar school, which had been, but a similar experience, I suppose, of not being very welcome there and, you know, uh, and also learning judo, actually. So well, you see, it, it shows you that we're just byproducts with our own process. I literally knew how to throw the boys and, uh, you know, get my own back. So despite being small, I knew how to defend myself, which was something my grandfather taught me that I should do, you know, learn how to defend yourself. But I, I, I'm interested there that, you know, there's a difference between what you're taught and what you learn. So many people think they go through the early part of their life being taught in school, in college, in university, in the early years at work. Um, and I love this distinction between, you know, you go to school uh, and you take the lesson and then you take the test. But uh, in the school of life, <laughs> you learn the lesson and then you take the test and then you learn the lesson the other way around. And, um, that's where the real learning comes from. If you can, as you have done, really look at that and say, what am I seeing? What patterns am I seeing? What behaviors am I seeing? But uh, so I'd be interested in your thinking about that, you know, the difference between people who are taught and people who are learned. And I think you're almost talking about it as being the difference between lateral and linear thinking. I do think that, you know, we are a symbiotic human society with two types of hard wiring yeah. and um so it's a bit like an ant colony you know the soldier ant doesn't go and look at the uh, the worker ant and say hey we're the same you know you're different you have different functions and we do have those functions except for we struggle because unlike arms legs athletic capability we can't see brain functionality and capability so I would say that if you're a lateral person and most people are lateral, I mean, linear person, you are taught because the way that they move quickly through education is to regurgitate what they're taught. 
So they appear to be quick learners because they give the teacher exactly what they want in a regurgitated format. If you're a lateral thinker, you can't accept information in a linear string. So you spend the first portion of your life, it's a bit like landing on another planet with a different language. And I think the lateral people, you know, and again, it's, it's very hard for a lateral person with a low IQ to make this leap. It's much easier for a high IQ lateral person. And this is where the two actually cross-correlate and to essentially start to formulate what I call a learn-to-learn program. Think of it as an internal three-degree hologram that they construct where they can order information in an interlinked way. So the reason why they appear slow is because they're having to build the construct and work out where you put things and early linkages. So a learn-to-learn person will literally get better and better. They'll surprise always their teachers, especially if they're linear teachers, and they'll keep breaking the limits year after year as the hologram becomes more capable, more interlinked, and more populated. And in fact, so much so that you can spot a lateral person after 40 or 50 because they have a deeply curious mind that doesn't stop. It gets worse. You can see 80-year-old people who literally never stop asking questions who are lateral, whereas the destiny for linear thinkers is a bit like the where does the apogee of the ball reach? It's probably around 40 when actually that learning process stops and they become more rigid and established. And although might, there might be incremental learning, we're talking about the ability to quantumly reconstruct and rewire that, that three-dimensional hologram inside. So there are two very different processes, and we have a different functionality. And I was you know, mentioning earlier, my own theory is that Lateral thinking is a hunter-gatherer's natural state because every day is a physical challenge. It's naturally anyone close to the sea that lives on the sea with an adaptable environment that forces you to see multivariables coming your way and make decisions. So people on the sea are equally, if not more, lateral as a result. So the thing that happened in human society that changed things was the birth of the agrarian system. About 10,000 years ago, the predictability of crops and the social coherence of interlinkage between a neighbor who helped and the villages and they operated produced a far more sustainable and reliable and consistent process of living, barring being attacked by some marauding warriors or you know a local weather event. Relatively speaking, compared to the life of a hunter-gatherer or someone who worked on the seas, it was far more predictable. And so that's where the linear process started to work because it's and they were adapted to do that and so we have different origins and i think within society leadership strangely enough all of our great leaders are lateral and you know and and one of the reasons is i would say is lateral people have high levels of empathy if they're honed and there's a really important part of that as a leader and if you imagine if you're a trench and you say right boys when i blow the whistle essentially we're going to get over the top and we're going to go for those chappies at the other side and if you have no empathy you have no idea whether you've connected to those men and you stand up you get shot and they're still in the trench and 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 essentially that's the functionality of combat empathy is the ability to link yourself to a group and understand what they will and won't do with you because they trust you. And so great leadership requires great empathy. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's more prevalent in boundless forms, as is feminine thinking, because it's intriguing. Women who are lateral are actually not not, not so different from women that are linear, because women are more cross-lateralized anyway. Mm -hmm. So the difference isn't extreme. The difference really comes between lateral men and linear men. And actually, they really don't mix that well 
in a in a peer group situation, mainly because I think personally that if you look at lateral people tend to be singular and stand on their own and linear people create social groups and are better at creating political dynamics and given time they'll eject their mavericks because they're not accepted to the group and the process therein is you lose your creativity in your society or business and you certainly kill any chance of adaptability in crisis so it's a little bit like sort of the darwin awards this brilliant idea that i built my business and they're all linear thinkers and along comes something different and you've just you've just edited yourself out of history with lack of adaptability isn't that fascinating i see that in organizations and teams that i work with how uh you know the uh the maverick thinkers become the outliers and uh, you know the ones that are excluded the other thing i was going to say david which is i think is very interesting going back to the agricultural revolution is you know and i'm really interested in nutrition but the type of food that people then ate because I know some of the um, some of the doctors who are again maverick thinkers talk about grain brain and bread head. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it made a difference to our thinking, you know, not living on, you know, the hunter gatherer diet. And I'm really interested in this currently, you know, the fish and the and the meat with the right balance of fats and the and the water and the, with the minerals in. If you go down this route of eating mostly grains, it has an impact on, again, how your brain functions. I, I so agree with you. So, for example, I'm a celiac and, you know, and celiacs are predominantly type O's. And if you follow the branch of thinking you eat for your blood type, like O's are hunter gatherers and A's are agrarians yes. and the B's are kind of an Asian difference and each of us have a different genetic legacy to optimize what we do and i know that i operate on a low carbohydrate diet really well if you give me carbohydrates i literally just gum up and so i avoid them like the plague and i operate at a very high level of energy and and strangely enough we are what we eat in absolutely every terms now i prefer fish as i get older to to meat meat is something i eat sometimes but fish i love the feeling of eating and being sustained, but not having to sit there and digest it for four hours. I like to be able to get up from the table and feel as if that was great. Now, what are we going to do next? And, you know, a fish vegetable diet uh, is actually one that I really, really like. I mean, I'll give you a clue. Murrin means of the sea in Gaelic. Oh. And I was brought, conceived on a boat, apparently, because my parents were in the waterways of Holland. And they were there for two months. And if you go back nine months, that gives me my birthday. And at the same time, I've been brought up sailing. So I'm a passionate sailor. So I feel like I'm, I live on the land, but really I'm adapted for the sea. And as I grow up, I, I eat more fish than anything else. There's a very interesting nutritionist that I, I can't remember his name now, Peter Carruthers, perhaps I'll put it in the show notes, but he has done uh, some very interesting talks about how the diet you're suggesting is the best food for, for the brain and for thinking fish, fish oils. Um, that's really what we actually need. So that's fascinating. But back to the topic. <laughs> well, small, small detail. It's all related, isn't it, really? Because, you know, we, as we said earlier, you know, if you don't, don't look after your body, where on earth are you going to live? Well, and also you, you asked about how did I get to this moment? Mm. And that is by looking, you know, really, I came out of the jungle with amoebic dysentery that lasted 15 years. And, you know, all sorts of things, whatever I did, I did, you know, in spite of, problems which I encountered and I actually self-diagnosed myself because it was beyond doctors to realize that the maybe dysentery had an asexual stage and it had got everywhere in my body 
and I diagnosed it because it had a periodicity and I charted it every six weeks I fell over and I'd spent some time with a World Health Organization doctor who told me about how the early diagnosis of malarial types was a periodicity of temperature. So when I worked out I had a period, I knew it was a parasite. And I even noticed that my emotional feelings and profiles felt differently when the thing was rampant. Things that weren't really me, I was feeling. And I was very taken by you know, the process of how parasites adapt the behavior of their host. Ants, for example, with some parasites climb to the top of glass break, grass blades so they can be picked up by the bird and transmitted. And I kept thinking, this is really weird. This isn't me. And when I finally found someone who helped me diagnose it, and six months later, I never felt those feelings again. So being acutely aware of what, how I feel when I'm operating and the, you know, the discord when I don't, gave me an insight into there was some other energetic process going on in my body, which affected my who I was. And everything comes back to energy, I think, David. And one of the things I was reflecting on is, you know, in terms of conflict, that we experience it in three levels, all at the same time, probably, but we've got our inner conflict. And that could be because you've got a parasite inside you, but you know, <laughs> there are other things going on as well. But you have your inner sense of who you are, uh, what the world means, what other people are doing, you know, how that impacts on, on you. And then you've got your interpersonal relationships and the conflicts that happen in those. And then your international, you know, relationships and the sense of international conflict. And we're really talking about the mix of all of those together, really, and how we make sense of each of those, but also the connectedness of them. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, like you, I believe that you know we're an energetic being first. And I've studied Chinese martial arts since I was about 20 internal martial arts and been gifted with some really tremendous teachers that taught me that for me, chi is real, our energetic process. I'm talking about your spiritual process, your energetic process. So that whole process of when you start off and you're lateral and you sense, you intuitively think of things, you're taught by the linear people around you to not trust your feelings. Mm -hmm. Your feelings are your strongest power when they're honed, but you need to be centered for those feelings to be valid. Otherwise, it could be the responses of your lower brainstem going riot rather than actually an inner feeling. So in priority of coping with life, finding your center, as the Chinese would say, your physical energetic center is the first place that then at least help you process the emotional burdens that we all have as we go through childhood to become adults. And no parent is perfect and no environment is perfect. And we will all suffer from legacies and shaping that actually, as we become an adult, we have to work through to release, to find who we really are. And, and you know, I often think about partner selection as actually the first time is the first partner. I think most lateral people end up with a linear person first off. Guarantee you. Why do we do that? We do that because we feel so different. We wish a gap to be bridged to the outside world, a bit like an interpreter. And then the compact changes because the lateral person grows beyond the construct of the pact. And then essentially it destabilizes the power base and ultimately it doesn't work the same way. Maybe energy and emotions are experienced differently. And it's not a personal process. You know, we like to think my partner had a name and your partner had a name. The truth is it is a process between a lateral and linear thinker where this process takes place and it is about, you know, it can't survive because it's not stable. It only survives as the lateral person suppresses themselves and literally is chained. But that's, you know, unlikely for most people. But the really lovely thing is when, you know, linear people choose linear people and lateral people choose lateral people and they match themselves with people who think fundamentally the same way. And you don't have that inner conflict in your partnership. But before you realize that, you have to resolve your inner conflicts, yes. you know, the, the conditioning you've been given parentally, your expectations. Yeah. 
And that's painful. And the only way we ever do that is by making an awful lot of the same mistakes and, and actually writing down that pattern because we are very good at denying our patterns. And we're very bad at collective patterns. This is very interesting. Collective patterns repeat because when we're part of a collective, there is no place in our brain where we store the decisions we made in a collective cycle. So that's the first thing that's happening to us. We have collective feelings. Then you've got to get to yourself. Then you've got to unravel how you were conditioned and shaped by your parental dynamics. And then you've got to find yourself, find your center, learn to live in that space. And from then, you suddenly become a more objective observer of the world because you're no longer reacting to everything that pokes you. And then you can start to assimilate data in a way that's actually reliable and reframe the things you have learned and keep the ones that are valuable and reject the things that aren't. And the Asian teachings talk about it. That transition has been passed across to the West in words we understand. And the result is there are, I think, more people in the West who understand the presence of being and being in the present. And that allows you ultimately to try and go through the process of understanding who we are and being in that place. And we have to be very empathetic as we look back on people who haven't quite, perhaps we would think, attained the same level because the most important thing is, is the process of recognizing the need to change, to be a seeker. And all seekers deserve respect wherever they are in that chain of evolution. I think the saddest thing is for people that think they're seeking, but literally are locked into the same loop. So an awful lot of people say, I'm a seeker but they've never escaped the first degree of loop. And that is something that is really difficult to watch if they're in our lives. And at some stage you have to make a decision. Actually, you can't change that person or give them the information because they choose not to use it. Yes. And that's difficult when you realize you can't change the world with the information you've gleaned. And there's a sort of sense of wisdom that comes with, you can't go around changing the world, only sharing knowledge with people who wish to have a Catholic experience and found you for that information. And in that beautiful way, it cascades through the system. So it's hard to do that because if you think you have knowledge, of course you want to make everyone better and healthier. And, and it's, a, it's fascinating. The, the concept of self-sabotage is not talked about enough in society, but as a trader that can do an infinite number of things to be successful or not, it's the, inter, it's the ultimate test of finding your saboteur and understanding who you are. And I first encountered a man called Van Tharp, who specialized in trading psychology to liberate the saboteur. And once you realize that we all have one somewhere at some stage, it was a great one. Your traders that thought, well, if I get too wealthy, I become a bad person. And that's it. They blow their trade. But they never realized that was their internal construct. So, so releasing the self-sabotage is something everyone has to have gone through that passage, rite of passage, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's fascinating how, you know, that process of learning about yourself. And for me, it's a lifelong journey. And if I look back to myself at 20 or 25 and then forward to myself now, you just think, oh, I knew nothing. Oh, I knew nothing at all about myself. I knew very little about the world, frankly, but I knew nothing about myself at that stage, really. I mean, I suppose I knew something, but not... Yeah, but at that stage, we're teenagers, 20-year-olds, and our job is actually procreation, go out and build an empire for ourselves. And there are certain things, like an empire cycle, that you are you are part of. And there's a cycle of life in this cycle of empires. It's a cycle of individuality. And what I don't often talk about is actually I internalized the journey of an empire as a singular person's lifestyle. And so as a physicist, it needed to be a fractal system where the life of an individual was the life of a, of a, 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 a clan or the life of a company, life of a nation, the life of an empire. They all had the same cycle. And I was acutely aware of that sense of an internal journey 
even up until that point. And then I could imagine what my journey would be like going forwards and relate it. So there was an awful lot of the inner journey expressed in the external pattern recognition, which I don't often talk about, but it was quite an important part of it. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, David, is to think about the times that we're in and how, you know, what we're talking about now relates to where we're at in this period of history. It seems to me to be not only a moment of crisis, but a pivotal moment as well. And a moment where I don't know if we have a choice, but there is a distinction to be made between two different paths that we might go down at this stage that are very much related to what you're what we're both talking about so the concept of catastrophe or consciousness which i thought we face yeah and i'm going to talk with i think if you travel the universe and you looked at every sentient system there would come a moment when it evolved from its unconscious collective behaviors to a more sentient self-aware collective system Mm -hmm. so i have a theory called the theory of human anti-entropy it's basically our survival process is based on the idea that um, we didn't know it, but we created social units and we were stronger together in social cohesion because we survived the entropy of the world around us. And the bigger our units, the more we're able to marshal our capabilities. And empires, for example, are the ultimate social construct. And if you think about the Roman Empire, for example, they had a god of grains. But then suddenly when they got their grain from Egypt, Spain or wherever else, They didn't need a god of grains because if something went wrong in Egypt, they just got their grain from Spain. So one by one, they removed the multi-variability of their lives and a poly-religious system, and they could deal with just one god because they'd control their environment, understood it better. So the migration between polytheism and monotheism was linked to the state and size of an empire and the control of its environment. And so then what happens is as that system becomes sequescent, the idea that a cell becomes alive but non-functioning and lacks vibrancy in the body, so a sequescent empire, it's actually an impediment to human advance. So that's weakness and the exhibitors of hubris and weakness and lack of adaptability. And a new system rises up that then sweeps it aside through conflict. And here's the really big shock, is we have been using conflict to develop every single part of our human history. And that process is a Darwinistic challenge of the old system and the new system and essentially which one's stronger to let that system then continue or not and to reach a new peak of social coherence. And that's the story of mankind. We all appear warfare, but it keeps happening. So I think someone on a string recently said, you know, we've so regressed. And they said, no, you don't understand. We never advanced. <laughs> well, that's that to me seems very true. And, and one of the principles that I use in my own work, which is essentially as mediation, we are dealing with conflict and the inevitability of it. And um, this is, uh, I think it came from the Harvard Project on Negotiation, but it's, uh, it's an understanding that if you want collaboration in as an individual in an organization or in society, you have to accept, acknowledge and actively manage conflict. Now, what that actively manage phase means, we may, you know, we may have different ideas around or there may be different options around. But that is the foundation. That's the fundamental basis of being able to build things, not to deny it whereas what i see my clients doing almost always is to deny 
conflict to disbelieve it and fail to make any plans. So they don't have any plans. They don't actively manage their conflict. They end up in the abyss. So your observation raises all sorts of intersections to that point. <laughs> and I'm going to try and work through the ones I can remember at the beginning and get to the end. Yes. I think that, I think the first thing is lateral people tend to be genetically going back to the hunter-gatherer model, more warrior-like. Yes. And so a lateral person can interpret the hostile intent of another person, identify it more accurately, even if it's a covert dynamic, and is more ready to confront that if they've had the tools of life to do it. The linear process is, you know, much more, leave me alone. I want to carry on living the same day, same process. If I deny that process, then it's not happening, which then only exacerbates aggression. And at the same time, I think the hard wiring of confrontation is much harder for that particular way of thinking. So you just keep eating the blade of grass and hope the wolf on the fringe of the field just goes and picks someone else. That's a coping mechanism. Um, so I think there's two mechanisms that go with that. Now, interestingly enough, if you go and link it to the higher level that we face right now, there are two human systems of organization. One, which is the most common in history, has been hierarchical. I'm an emperor with a pyramid of power and lots of people at the bottom feed a few people at the top. And that really suits landlocked countries and who are predominantly more linear in their thinking. And the whole system is one giant ant colony that operates symbiotically. China, for example, is genetically coded to like, is quite happy to be that country. And so is Russia. Now, whereabouts democracy came about? My thesis is it was linked to sea powers because when you go to sea, you need to be lateral to survive and your crews are more lateral. So literally people in boats create meritocracies because you're all in it together and they're capability driven and they're lateral. So it is no coincidence Athens, the greatest sea power of Greece, was the seat of the early forms of democracy. And Sparta, that was a land power that had ships, but it was predominantly land orientated, lived in the, the, the hierarchical paradigm. It's no coincidence that Britain, with its high ratio of coastline to internal volume, was a place that really in the Western world begat democracy. And the Dutch were the same as a sea power. And we took with us, by conditioning and the need to adapt, the countries around that couldn't compete, that were just continental linear systems like Germany and France. So right now, we face a period in time where the hierarchies, the autocracies of Russia and China, they're always going to come together basically are matched and they face what's left of the democratic world at its weakest moment. Mm. And the reason why we're particularly weak is because I mentioned in that terminal phase of decline, what happens is the system prints money and that makes it all look normal. And it lets linear leadership literally rise at every level of the system because it's so under control. Whenever there's a problem, I print more money. It smooths out the curve. Who needs a maverick to tell me the fed can't support the next collapse. Mm-hmm. And, that's essentially why you then become vulnerable to a hierarchy, because a hierarchy doesn't meet many lateral people, just needs a few lateral people at the top that wield this massive weapon, as long as it can fight in a, in a decentralized way when it fights. And as Hitler found, 
actually, funny enough, he had a very mobilized army when he went into Europe in 1940, where a corporal took some very big decisions. And then as he lost the war, he became more and more controlling. If you look at the Allied forces in Britain, we had a very controlled structure in 1940. And by the end of it, we devolved power right the way down to the lower NCOs. So there's an adaptation of how you lead in control or empowerment that both systems represent in different ways. And we're right at that conflict moment. And the people who have authority, and this message is not an easy message to pass on, is you really do have to look in the mirror and say, how did I get here? Because if you are not a lateral thinker, rather than deny it and take your ship down with you, realize that what you need is an infusion of lateral thinking, which can save your premacy, your company, your entity, by that infusion acceptance of that energy, however difficult it is personally, or you just deny it and the whole system collapses and you presided over that failure through lack of adaptation. And that's what conflict really does. It is no longer, as some of our politicians think, bluster that we're going to save Ukraine, bluster that Ukraine is going to win, because the only thing that matters in conflict is the kinetic energy of who wins and who loses. There is no bullshit in the process. And so this is about removing the veil of personal dishonesty, personal delusion, and replacing it with a cold, hard reality of who we really are, how we operate. Now, to many linear people who've just heard me say that, I'm probably on your death list. But what I'm really doing is I'm making appeal to you because our system doesn't have time to replace you through your failures because the failure will be catastrophic. So you need to realize that actually you need lateral people to infuse the thought process. And it's going to be really uncomfortable when you do that because they're going to challenge who you are, what you think and how you got there. But I remember one experience I'm going to just mention to you. And when I was seeking to be this proprietary directional trader, the only people that did it were in the States. There was no one in Europe who even believed that particular pursuit would work. And there was one famous guy called Stedelmeyer who developed a system of looking at markets was different. And he had been trading in the pits for 40 years. And of course, this was like one hell of a survivor. And he told a story and he said, every 10 years, my friend's work changed completely. And I thought about that and I didn't understand why. And then I did. It's because over roughly 10 year cycles, there was one economic environment that they'd learned to master. And when it changed, they failed to master it and they all went out of business. And what defined me as being different is I recognized the difference and I adapted. And I went through four fundamental changes environment. And I remember thinking, I was only maybe 25 at the time, I remember thinking, whatever I do in my life, I need to build a model that allows for that ability to make quantum changes and recognize environmental changes so I remain in an adaptable state. And right now, we've met one of those changes. And for everyone, lateral or linear, we now have to rise to the adaptation. So reinvention, I know I, I've reinvented myself so many times, I can't tell you, <laughs> during the course of, I think I go in 11 year cycles, actually, David, I've worked out. <laughs> well, give or take a year, who's who's moaning, right? <laughs> but I guess what you're saying is, is quite hard, actually, because for a linear leader to recognise that they need the help of lateral thinking and bring that person in must be a step too far for many, don't you think? For, for many it will be, but I'm now going to suggest a phrase and a personal question. So I think that most people would agree that leadership is a service to the people they lead. 
Mm-hmm. And leadership fails when that leader serves themselves. Yes. So yes. one of the qualities we've seen in America, because it's clearly in decline, is narcissistic presidency. Yes. And obviously Trump is our clear rampant example. But Obama was equally as narcissistic. It's just he had some very good social camouflage. And that social camouflage meant because he communicated and looked empathetic, but the number of things he did that unraveled the American empire for his own egocentric agenda is really as bad as Trump. Um, And so both of those didn't serve the nation they led. They served themselves. So if you are a linear leader that realizes life is really getting difficult, then ask yourself the question, if you wish to be a leader that seeks to serve the people you lead, then to do that, you have to lead an adaptation. But if you can't answer that honestly and know that the really dark question is, do you serve yourself? Then actually, you're going to take yourself down too. So you really should make the adaptation for your own survival. That's a critical question, isn't it, David? We'll have to, I'm going to summarise that at the end of our thing because I think that's so so relevant, so pertinent to where we are now, to organisations but to individuals. And what I want to move on to asking you is, because this podcast is almost about that, what can we as individuals do? How do we lead? Because we can't, to some degree, we may be within an organisation or some of us may be leading our own businesses or organisations and have some... Uh, leverage there but on the whole we're individuals what can we do I I think the question we talked about when we started was how can the individual optimize their responses to this environment to help themselves and society respond the way it needs to yes and how do we Uh, cascade that message see it how do we you know so it's a really really pertinent question that you know and and so the first thing that we need to do absolutely desperately need to do as and this is more the role of the lateral thinker that's like the sheepdog in many ways Mm. is to recognize the wolf is upon us Mm -hmm. and to bark not to the not to the busy people eating grass hoping today will be the same as yesterday because to be fair that's not their role is to bark to the other sheepdogs and literally confer and recognize that the wolves are at the edge of the field And that is the discussion of the reality of the situation we're in right now. And I've argued this is the start of World War III. There is no way out of this. Putin is committed to winning in Ukraine. He didn't start this to just end in Ukraine. He started this because he's aligning himself against NATO. He's polarizing his country, what I call secondary polarization, to literally the whole, all that's left, and the information that all the manipulations that we laugh at are for his population, not for us. Mm-hmm. It's a story of why they should feel victimized, attacked to create that secondary polarization to respond and align behind his aggression. And then you have the Chinese who cannot afford to let Putin lose because he's their breadbasket of resources and he protects their northern border. And if he loses his struggle, then the West will literally, t- the West will win, Russia will flip, and, he's, and China's surrounded. So we're in this right now, in this terrible struggle. And the quicker we rise to it, and the quicker there is, if there's one option out of it to prevent it, you know, being a domino effect, we need to finish Putin's objectives quickly in Ukraine. Time is not on our side because the economy of Russia is stronger than us as a commodity producer. The Chinese will mobilize behind them. And literally, we're constantly going to be reacting to two countries that have planned our demise for 15 years. 
So urgency is critical here. And we and what is at stake is this moment of catastrophe rather than consciousness. It's the end of democracy. Make no mistake. If we lose this, there's no way we can coexist with two autocratic systems that believe democracy is a virus. So you're looking at a struggle that's truly titanic, where the whole world is wrapped into democracy and individual rights and aspirations to suppression and hierarchy. That's where the human race is right now. So the first recognition is this is, and I keep thinking about this phrase from Tolkien, and it's a phrase where um, Gandalf speaks to Frodo, I think, and he says, this is the doom of our time. And it's a really powerful phrase, but that's where we are. We cannot escape it. And our only chance is to follow the brave example of the Ukrainians, but not wait to be attacked, to literally realize we are being attacked right now and standing up. And modern war can just as easily reach us as it can anywhere in Ukraine right now. So distance doesn't save us. And so we need to recognize that this is a war. We need to demand of our politicians. They say the words, we're at war and we're spending money on defense because otherwise we won't be here. And we've been so derelict in our duty. We're going to have to spend so much so quickly and mobilize the country like we did for ventilators. That's the urgency of the message. And if we wish our children to thrive in freedom, we have to really start to face the enemy and actually be prepared to confront it and fight as the Ukrainians are. Because there is no choice right now. We maybe have a moment of deterrence where we can show Xi that actually joining with Russia isn't going to work. And we can literally do something that faces Putin down. But literally every day we don't just guarantees that World War III will be worse and worse and worse. So that's the reality of it. Most lateral people I talk about somewhere in their consciousness know this. Some have accepted it, some haven't. And for those that are sheepdog, now is the time to start barking. Now is the time to start sharing it with each other, because every time we share our fears and reality, it becomes more certain in our energy and thoughts. And the role of sheepdogs is not necessary to fend the wolves off. It's to warn everyone else to run or to turn around or shape their actions. So right now, we need the warning bells to be loud and clear. This is not a time where we can accept politicians who pretend otherwise, that when you provide weapons of war against Russia and you stop his forces using end laws, or you provide signal intelligence that directs you know, weapons on Russian commanders, that we are not at war. We are. He sees it as such, and he will treat us as such. But we are in a state of delusion. So it's up to sheepdogs to start barking, start talking to each other. And, and for those who are linear, who find this hard, this do not kill the messenger, yep. right? This is really important. Yep. We have created a social structure that relies on the sheepdog sheep. I say it not in a derogatory sense because we both need each other. One isn't better than the other. We are symbiotic in how we relate. There are whole things that linear people and thought processes do that a lateral person could never do. We are a symbiotic race, but the sheepdogs were there for a reason and they're barking louder and louder. So the quicker we mobilize everyone, the safer we're going to be. And yes, it's terrifying, but I can tell you it's even more terrifying to go in our sleep, to be run over without even being prepared to literally see the future of our children disappear 
and lucky to survive, as the people of Ukraine have found out. And and so it's it's harder to come to. It's hard, but we need to turn to face our enemy and we need to confront it and demand our leaders do the same. So sheepdogs scream. And for those of you that aren't a sheepdog, bear in mind that sheepdogs trying to protect you, not trying to gain advantage over you or humiliate you by showing you something that you should have known or didn't do. This is the time not for those recriminations. It's the time to be together and work together. So that would be the message I'll give. I was going to ask you for a final message, but I think that's it, David, really. That is the final message, isn't it? You know, a call out to sheepdogs and a call out to those who need to pay attention to the bark and to understand it's not, you know, that it's a it's a warning. It's a warning. And that we need to take heed. And we and we need to we need to find the leader. We need to find the leader within. And I think this series of podcasts has been about that. You know, how do you find the leader within yourself, whatever that means to you? It that it is a moment of recognition of who you are and what you can do in times of crisis. Um and how can we come together in those times? Well, I mean, we're very lucky in Britain because I've long since argued that our second rise in our system started with Margaret Thatcher in 79. So we are not like Europe and we are not like America. We are a system actually in ascension. And we did something amazing. We went through a regional civil war, which we know as Brexit, Mm-hmm. The greatest social forces of change between this require for lateral leadership to push aside linear leadership to create more expansive thought process for the whole system to benefit. We did that within the constraints of law and democracy. We confirmed the power of our democracy in the process. We have a problem because we didn't complete the social change, as in we've got some extremely lateral leadership that doesn't have any mental discipline. And then we've got basically a group of linear thinkers still in government who in in a conflict would have been swept aside that are busy undermining the lateral thinkers at the top. That has to end. We need to basically, the first thing, if, if I was making an appeal to Boris, I would say right now, you need to go through every single advisor you have and look at them and say lateral, linear, lateral, linear. And you need to be surrounded by lateral thinkers because this linear thought process, which we responded to in the pandemic and we're responding to now, means we are completely behind the curve when we're being attacked by two lateral thinking people and systems who've been planning this for 15 years. And if you're in a business, you need to find your lateral people and you need to promote them. You need to create a war cabinet of lateral people and change the way you do it. For those that do, adaptation is at hand. Those that don't, It's going to be really tough. And I think that Britain's role, and I've long since thought, what is it to be British? We are now, America is in a Zimmer frame, not because it can't help, but because its intention and leadership is so linear and and weak. And I was told off for the day because my nickname for Biden is the invertebrate. Um, But I will say it because he is responsible for World War III from his route from Afghanistan to the signals he sends singly he is responsible for sending signals of weakness to predatory systems. And until we find a way of actually changing that, we have to recognize it first and we have to demand its change. In, in For America, I think they may face leadership changes and switches that have never seen before, never, because they're in so much danger but, and there was no one to replace him you know, one and two levels below. Yeah. And this is now a survival situation. So we've got some big, in Britain, I think Boris could be the right person, but I think he has to completely 
changed the way his advisory structure is. He's surrounded by a, a ring of linear thinkers who imprison him and provide behind the behind the curve information. So for, for Boris, if you ever get to hear this, I think you can be the person you aspire to be, but you do need to change the way information flows into you. And you need to find lateral people who are secure, who serve the nation they work for, will work with you and for you, not with political gain, but to save our great nation and make a big difference essentially to the democratic world. Because I think the leadership's gonna come out of Britain. That's a great message actually to end on. I like to end on a slightly optimistic message there, <laughs> David. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, we haven't we covered a lot, you know, really going right back to your childhood and, and how that has, has shaped you and enabled you to understand shapes as well. And then, you know, how that uh, has helped us to unpack where we're at today. And um, fascinating, fascinating. There, there's one thought I would like to leave you with. Yes, please do. Um, I've often imagined um, what it would be like to be a race that traveled the universe and was millions of years old. And I think somewhere in the balance of the universe, the process of anti-entropy is some kind of balance to the natural entropy of the universe. So conscious life is far more valuable and far more a part of the fabric of the universe than we realize. And so in watching races evolve, they will all have an unconscious survival mechanism, which I suspect is competitive and war is at its heart. And they will all come to a moment when the weapons of war are so destructive that mechanism of evolution becomes potentially the mechanism of that race's destruction. Some might not make it, but many, I think, go to the edge. And right at the moment of being over the edge, realize how they got there and the need to change. Now, how I describe that edge for us is a recognition that appeasement begats wars and only deterrence and strength faces down aggressive predators is our lesson that will give us the space to literally absorb that change. I do believe in human spirit, and I do believe that it will feel absolutely horrendous up until the moment of looking over the precipice. But in that moment, just like an alcoholic that realizes and has to realize they're an alcoholic or any addict, now 51% of the way of their evolution, we need to get to that 51% state that ushers in a new era in mankind's reality that we are a collective organism with unconscious patterns that no longer suit us and need to change those. And when I wrote Breaking the Code of History, it really was this thing I'd stumbled upon, a template for that understanding, which I hoped would allow a transition to a different form of conscious collective behavior. But it's going to be very difficult before then, and sheepdogs need to bark very loudly. Thank you, David. I hope that we make that transition. I hope at some level this recording makes a difference to help us make that transition. Thank you for your time. Where do people find you if they're interested in, in learning more about you and your work and your books? Um, just go to my site, www.davidmurrin.co.uk. I've made it um, very open. So the information available is on the open face is, is really quite considerable. My theories are there for people to read. There's a host of podcasts and interviews which I've offered in trying to share this understanding and knowledge. And if you want to understand day-to-day -day what's happening, then just subscribe to Amara Nations. It's less than a newspaper. 
And then all of my insights and my processes in terms of predictions and understandings are translated into real time. And I was able to predict many things, including the invasion of Ukraine and all the steps that have been taken right now. So it's a template to get you know, the sheepdogs and everyone else who's interested up to scratch with what's really happening and what is likely to happen rather than this belated information flow, which is actually stifling us and stifling our response. David, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to this podcast if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends and colleagues please do subscribe to the barefoot mediator podcast series and if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change challenge and crisis and download a pdf copy of my book how to beat bedlam in the boardroom and boredom in the bedroom please go to janegunn.co.uk slash video the link is in the show notes.